here. Well, welcome everybody. Um, and thank you for listening. My name is Cindy Connolly. I'm a professor of nursing at the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing. And I'm associate director um, of the Barbara Bates Center for the Study of the History of Nursing. And I'm a pediatric nurse and a, histor a historian of children's health. And I'm talking today to my good friend, Janet Golden. Um, and we're gonna talk about my book that came out in 2018, um, published by Rutgers University Press and the series for which Janet is a one of the series editors, Critical Issues in Health and Medicine. And the book is called Children and Drug Safety, Balancing Risk and Protection in 20th Century uh, America. Janet is a professor uh, emerita at Rutgers Camden uh, University Department of History. I think she's well known to many of the people who will be listening um, to this uh, podcast, but um, I will turn it over to her and let her add anything she wants about herself and then start asking some questions. Well, good afternoon, Cindy. I'm glad to mm -hmm. see you virtually. I, in different times, we'd be together in the same room. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you about your book because uh, it crosses so many fields from um, history of healthcare to children's history, pharmaceutical history, uh, business history. It, it's really very exciting. So why don't I just want to begin by asking you, what is it that you see yourself as studying as a historian? That's a great question. Um, so what I wanted to do was to um, was to do all those things that you mentioned. I was in so as a as a pediatric nurse, I'm interested in historical topics that have some salience or resonance um, to contemporary um, issues. But I also um, want to do good history, and so I was looking for a topic uh, that was a contemporary. Uh, issue and, and still an, an issue, policy and practice issue, for which really you could only understand the issue by unpacking it historically. And so it would engage both sides of my brain. And so I want, and that it sat at the interface of the state and business, as well as the history of healthcare and um, how we think about children and families in the United States. What, um, and that it would also add to the history of what we know about drugs and drug policy, um, what made it the perfect topic for me to spend 10 years on. So um, let me just add that it's such, it, you cover so much ground in this book and yes, I have read it twice. <laughs> and um, when you went to, to sort of ask historical questions, uh, what were the questions that were in your in your head to ask of the of the raw material? Sure. Well, oh, thanks for asking that. But let me let and let the, to, in order to answer that question, I need to tell you exactly how I got interested in the topic. And it was in two thousand and two when I was working as a fellow on Capitol Hill in the office of the late great Senator Paul Wellstone of Minnesota. And um, I was asked to staff a hearing in 2002 for, a, a, for proposed legislation 
that ultimately became um, landmark pieces of legislation, the Best Pharmaceuticals for Children Act and the Pediatric Research Equity Act. And I thought I knew something about um, children's health in the United States. Then I had been a nurse for, a pediatric nurse for more than 20 years. And I um, thought I knew something about the history of children's health care too, because I had just finished a dissertation on a pediatric related topic, and that was on children and tuberculosis. Um, that became my first book. And so I heard um, Senator, then Senator Christopher Dodd of Connecticut made a statement that we needed these two pieces of legislation. And um, he said, because he said only a fraction of the drugs on the market had ever been tested for safety in children and that we were routinely playing Russian roulette with our children. And I sat there absolutely stunned um, for the reasons I just said. I thought I knew something about children's health today and yesterday. And I'm looking around the room and all the policy people are nodding. And I'm thinking, you know, I'd given hundreds of drugs at that point. Um, uh, I'd given hundreds of different types of drugs, probably to thousands of children. And I had used my drug manuals and I, that I would, could look up the, the norm of what I thought were evidence-based doses. And um, I thought that, that we knew exactly what we were doing, that these things, that these drugs had been tested um, and there was good evidence to support them. And most of the pediatricians I went and asked didn't know um, either that we um, didn't have a sound knowledge, a sound basis for the clinical practice of children and pediatric um, drugs. And so it again, so that and what I here's what but I knew that most of the pieces of major 20th century drug-related legislation had come about because of issues surrounding children from the founding of the FDA, um, in part because of these narcotic-laced syrups um, were being sold over the counter, killing thousands of children a year, to a major law in 1938. It came about because of one of the first sulfa drugs where hundreds of kids died, to the thalidomide um, disaster in the 1960s. All of these had involved children and keeping children safe played a major role. And so, um, and so, so how was it that, um, that we ended up making drugs safer for adults, but not children? So that's, that's what is what framed the, 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 the first question is, how did we get here? And why did we um, get here? Because it wasn't like no one was thinking about these issues. Um, but we, but they, but nothing we tried seemed to work. And here we were in the 21st century. Um, and go ahead, sorry. So really the main argument of your book is we have, we have to know why we've been giving all these drugs to children, but we've not asked what the drugs do to children. Is that what you want to say? So not exactly. The main argument of the, the book is that um, is that despite the fact that, that, that we had evidence pretty early on um, that children, um, that with regard to drugs, children needed their own laws. I'm not saying children needed their own laws for everything. Children, you know, benefit from the same pure water laws, pure air laws, <coughs> excuse me, safe highways, but we um, developed, there, there was sturdy evidence early on 
that that in order for uh, children to be um, receive the drugs, these new drugs coming on the market that could that that stood to really benefit them, they needed their own laws in which people were thinking about how to make sure that we have adequate data, pediatric data. But because, but no one, but because we never asked the right, because that was considered politically untenable, no one could figure out how to get industry to pay for that testing, or if industry should pay for that testing, or should government, should hospitals, um, who should pay. And the, the thought that probably there wasn't going to be political will to add new regulation on a very powerful and increasingly powerful in the 20th century sector of the American economy, people kept trying to help come up with workarounds. And so that's my central argument is, is that we uh, kept avoiding the real questions because um, we thought there'd be no political will to do um, what, what we finally did in the 21st century. Do you think we, is, is the contribution your book makes then to give us this history or is it also to nudge us to pay even deeper attention to this issue? Um, so thank, that it's, it's really both. It's to give us this history um, it's to use this history as a case study of, of, despite the florid rhetoric all across the political spectrum about the ways in which the United States has always acted in children's best interests, at, the, at, at a peak moment, uh, I, which I argue is the early 1960s, JFK is in the office. He has a young family. We just had had the 1960 White House conference um, on children's health, um, a, a, a landmark among all of those White House conferences. And it's sort of like the peak moment of the baby boom. And the United States has never been more powerful and never been more wealthy. That, that, um, and the evidence has never been more strong that the, that the laws in place are not protecting children. We still, do, we still do not do the right thing by them. It's to point that out the difference between the rhetoric and the reality in the United States with regard to, um, with regard to child protection and how we um, uh, think about children. But it's also about the fact that, um, yes, these laws now are in place. However, a lot of the drugs we use in children came to the market before these laws were in place and they're not about to be removed from the market and we haven't done that, that testing. And how are we going to do that testing? Um, some, um, and are, is that testing going to move offshore to other parts of the world where for a health clinic that might get built in, a, um, in an impoverished uh, part of Sub-Saharan Africa, for example, um, a, a, we might ask a community to expose their children um, to testing drugs in ways that we don't that we won't um, expose American children to. So how do we how do we think about children on a more global scale? And whose children are we thinking about when we think about child protection in the 21st century? Oh, and I can't think of a more timely matter now that we have questions about pediatric COVID cases, about yes. pediatric uh, COVID treatments, about vaccines. Um, and uh, I know every week the American Academy of Pediatrics puts out a report on COVID in children and every state has a different, different definition yes. of the child. They're combining 
infants and 17 year olds. Uh, so uh, it, having read your book that makes the point about we can't see children as some massive category where an infant is the same as a 17 year old, right. um, we continue to do that and we continue to not collect the data we need, just the baseline data on illness or responses to treatment. So I don't know if you wanna go and say something about that. So I'll say that, um, so yes, there was an article in JAMA Pediatrics in September, 2020 that um, points out to the readership that of the 270 um, trials registered in clinicaltrials.gov um, in the United States, only 30 enrolled children, patients under the age of 18 years. And so while there is a, a lot of data that's accreting about um, how what, what treatments, technologies, drugs are working um, with COVID, children are mostly excluded from those studies. Now, they are a small subset of the people who are getting very, very sick from um, COVID. But to my mind, that's no reason not to have the data that we need to treat those who are getting very ill, because the children who are getting the very ill and are dying from COVID are much more likely to be children of color, to be children from vulnerable populations, to, um, to um, be from impoverished communities, whose parents, the children whose parents um, don't have the luxury of Zoom, um, uh, you know, doing their work from Zoom, but must go to the front lines to be a hospital cafeteria worker or a city sanitation worker. And so for all those reasons, the, the children who are getting sick and who are dying are those most vulnerable um, children. And, and I will point out, and I learned this from our, our friend and your student, Jason Chernasky, that the percentage of children with COVID who are Latinx and African-American and poor is the exact same percentage of children who uh, were diagnosed with HIV AIDS uh, contracted in utero. And that is 75% of the cases. So that is an important thing to think about as we begin to look for therapeutics and, and vaccines. And as we begin to track what are the long-term consequences of exposure. Yes. And whether it's a mild case or a serious case, what are the long-term consequences? So let me, let me turn away from our contemporary dilemma and ask a question that follows on. I know that as we go looking for the COVID children today and the pharma and the therapeutics will know where to go because you, those drug trials are reported and there's information. But when you went to ask questions about the early 20th century and uh, children and pharmaceuticals, what kind of primary material did you go dig up and where did you find it? Sure. The, um, well, thanks. Well, um, so I was lucky enough to have a large grant um, from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation that not only provided me with salary support, but lots of travel money. And so that meant that wherever I found potential sources, institutional records, physicians records, organizational records, um, national archives, FDA records, I would be able to travel to go and look at those records. And that is a real luxury. So I wasn't limited um, by that, um, by that, but I did face um, a, a number of challenges um, in that how, first of all, it's a big sprawling topic. 
um, you know, hundreds of drugs came on the market in the 20th century, how to, how to narrow and boundary the topic to be able to provide both a synthesis as well as do fidelity to key moments and turning points. Um, importantly, how to tell a story in which the pharmaceutical industry is such a central actor without being able to get into their records. Um, I did try. Um, I contacted multiple, um, multiple uh, drug companies that had developed a number of drugs um, for children. I never received any reply. Um, as late as the 1990s, um, a number of the people who were doing work on pharmaceutical history were able to get some access to materials. Um, because they never replied, I can't tell you exactly why I, um, why I didn't get access. My hypothesis is that if there was something pot from a positive PR standpoint, they had already milked it themselves. And the last thing they wanted was some historian pouring through um, and finding something that might not point them in the most positive light. In other words, their lawyers convince them that there was absolutely nothing in it for them financially or from a PR perspective. And, you know, they were probably right um, about that. But, and so what I needed to do then was to, um, but fortunately um, they, be, they, um, they, you know, the, the pharmaceutical industry wrote lots of letters, submitted lots of applications to federal agencies. They needed to draw on pediatricians in academic, uh, academic pediatric practice and some in private practice, and they needed to partner with um, organizations like the American Academy of Pediatrics, all of which did keep great records. Um, and, so, and so you can find, um, you know, you can find lots and lots of things about individual drugs and about uh, actions and inactions of the pharmaceutical industry through all of those other um, through all of those other sources. Um, and I was also uh, able and then and then institutional records um, of nurses work, doctors work, as much as possible, the what it the, the experience of children and families, very hard to capture because of course institutional records are are capturing what the doctor thinks, what the nurse thinks, not, what the um, what the child thinks? You've really got to intuit um, what a, a what a child thinks from how they interpret, or a, a parent thinks from how they interpret that. And you, of course, Janet, brought the existence of the um, Sydenham records um, from the an, a pediatric infectious disease hospital in Baltimore to my attention. And you and I wrote an article um, with. Uh, with, um, uh, with an undergraduate student, um, Ben Schneider, um, and that was published in the Bulletin of the History of Medicine. And I used some of those same material um, and, and more though of the Sydenham data to be able to, for the, the chapters in my book that related to antibiotics. And so the clinical records were really invaluable to be able to unpack what was happening on the ground. You know, you make an important point there for other uh, historians of childhood, uh, which is one of the challenges that we face when we, when we do healthcare history is, of course, patient privacy 
records and requirements that um, may dip because there's federal law there about what can be opened and as well as IRB right. patient protection. So we have a, a particular uh, mountain to climb when we do childhood history that's in the healthcare field. But at the same time, I think what your book shows us is that when we look that we spend a lot of time in children's history kind of uh, looking at the ways children are treated as young adults or not young adults or how they're treated as precious future citizens. Um, but what your book really shows us is that we give a lot of a rhetorical attention to that. Our children are our future. But when it comes to passing these laws, whether it's a um, patient safety cap or whether it's testing of new drugs, uh, our children are really not getting the attention and the concern and the protection that we'd like to think they have. Well, thanks. And that, that gives me the opportunity, of course, to talk about my favorite chapter in the book, and that's my aspirin chapter. So I, so, um, I loved the, I mean, the, all the advertisements for the pharmaceutical industry are fun to look at. Um, the industry for the, my chapters in the book on prescription drugs, the, the pharmaceutical industry could not, they could only in that era advertise generally. So in other words, they could take, Merck could take out an advertisement in Parents Magazine that showed happy children um, and, um, and, and uh, always white children, girls playing with dolls, boys playing with trucks, and mothers in shirtwaist dresses sitting around um, talking about how much safer childhood was now that we had these modern drugs. But, um, but the uh, over-the-counter um, the over-the-counter drugs like aspirin, drugs for constipation, were completely different, a completely different animal because the, in those companies could advertise directly to parents. And that's when I, I guess you really see some of the most egregious maltreatment of, of, uh, of, of what children and family needs and of acting in children's best interest. Um, and so for that, for, so for that reason, for a lot of different reasons, the aspirin um, chapter is my favorite chapter. Children's aspirin, also known as candy aspirin, um, becomes to the market after World War II, just on the cusp of the baby boom, a brilliant, you know, perfect timing for this small dose flavored, um, uh, uh, delicious, uh, a delicious drug um, to become available. And, um, and very quickly, it's incredibly popular, almost immediately. It's advertised to mothers as, um, as you know, a, a, project, a product tailored just for your child. Um, and if this is some, if you, you know, if you care about doing right by your child, you're going to listen to the doctors in the ads and the testimonials from the mothers in the ads, and you're going to purchase this product that's been tailored for your for your child. But what we see is, is that that advertising works really, really well. Before World War II, only about 20% of the aspirin poisoning deaths in children come are, are from, uh, of the aspirin, yeah, the aspirin poisoning deaths are from children. Um, most of the others are from adults who overdose. Within a four-year period of time of introducing children's aspirin, Children comprise 80% of the deaths. They're a main reason behind the founding of the first poison control systems. 
of the, um, of the American Academy of Pediatrics focus on poison and of the FDA, um, some concerned parent organizations and pediatricians trying to figure a way to get industry to make it harder for little hands to be able to get access to these drugs that they're advertising as candy and also to standardize the doses because in this, there was no mandate for Bear and Plow to, um, so for St. Joseph's and Bear's children's aspirin to make sure that one tablet contained the same amount of aspirin and they didn't. So unless you were a parent who read very carefully, um, you could give one tablet of, of you know, of one, uh, one uh, company's drug and be giving twice the dosage. And, um, and it's here and in the, um, that, that after, despite many attempts on, again, by the FDA and concerned pediatricians and parents to be able to ask industry to standardize their tablet and to try and come up with a way to get the um, to be able to get these uh, what to get the pills hard to open for a child but still able to be opened by an adult and it's really not until 19 the 1970s that that happens and in the meantime the aspirin industry leaves a well documented trail through legislative hearings letters and other documentation of, of doing just what the tobacco industry and the lead industry and other industries are doing. And that is, that is um, obfuscating the science, attacking the people who are bringing the problem to the attention. In one audacious, um, one audacious uh, uh, pharma, pharmaceutical representative uh, advocate who testifies on Capitol Hill blames the, the, I call it the blame the toddler defense, blames children and toddlers themselves for overdosing on aspirin because they're Dennis the menace type children or children who are known to the child psychiatrist. Um, so I think it takes a lot to blame toddlers for their own behavior and most people wouldn't go there. And so you really, that, like I said, they leave such an, a, a trail where you can really elegantly see that what happens to children's interests when they, um, when they back up against one of the most powerful industries in the United States. You know, I think we should leave it right there <laughs> because that was an elegant statement about maybe a time in the past or not so distant past or, or not the past at all uh, when faith in science and in the regulation of science um, uh, was not always uh, leading to good policies because people turned away from the science and uh, didn't take the protective steps that citizens needed. And we'll, we'll just say that happened in the case for a long time with the aspirin and may, may be continuing. Well, thanks a lot for, first of all, Janet, for making the time to, um, to do this. And thanks to everyone who's taking the time um, to listen. Again, I'm at the University of Pennsylvania. If you want to engage in any further conversation, shoot me an email and we'll set up a Zoom call since my guess is we won't be in person for, uh, for a while. So were you, gonna, were you gonna say anything else, Janet, or? No, I, right. I, Cindy, send them your, give them your email, so. Oh, okay, my email is CAC, and then the numeral one, um, at nursing, 
N-U-R-S-I-N-G, nursing, dot U-P-E-N-N, U -P -E -N -N, dot E-D-U. Um, all right, I'm going to stop the recording. Thank you, everyone, so much.